guys! Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration for the week of August 29th, 2023, for the, where we, Jason and I, normally review every DC comic that comes out. Unfortunately, this week, uh, Jace can't join me. Uh, he's actually, uh, he's got a family member that he's visiting, so he's, he doesn't get to see very often, so he's, he's taking, uh, he's taking this uh, week off uh, to, uh, to do that. And so, we, I, you know, I wish him well, and I'm sure that he's going to be enjoying drinks with his son. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we ourselves, I have reason to drink, uh, given the fact that some of these comics this week aren't exactly up to up to par for me. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about some of those comics. Uh, we, we get the end of Night Terrors, uh, which, uh, which is, uh, you know, Night Terrors Night's End, which is uh, ending for DC. And we'll be, uh, we're going to be diving into that. So we're going to be reviewing Night's End. We're going to be reviewing uh, the opening stage, the opening uh, Gotham War Battle Lines, which is the the opening the, the opening comic book of the big event, Batman's next big event, uh, written by Chip Zdarsky and Teeny Howard. And uh, yeah, it's it's and it's interesting. It's sort of it's interesting how it's tied in and how the events at the end of Night's End will tie in the Gotham War. We'll be talking about that. There's the final issue of Riddler Year One, written by Paul Dano, the individual who wrote or who played the Riddler in the Batman movie. There's uh, the fourth issue of Nightmare Country, The Glass House, uh, Sandman Presents. We have the sixth issue of Superboy, or pardon me, the fifth issue of Superboy, The Man of Tomorrow, written by Danny Porter. And we've got the Doomsday Special, written by Dan Waters, uh, which uh, continues the story that was began that began in Lazarus Planet, where uh, Doomsday tried to resurrect himself through the collective minds of the citizens of Metropolis. We then, of course, get an, a wonderful, uh, nice little side excursion with Gnort's Swimsuit Illustrated, or Gnort's Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Uh, and uh, man, when you got some Adam Hughes art uh, showing off Power Girl... Uh, you know that that can't be a bad thing, and it isn't. And we have Catwoman Uncovered, which shows off some of her covers, and we might talk, uh, reference some of the other comic book compilations and trades and collections that will be coming out this week of August 29th. But in any event, guys, let's get started. Uh, let's jump right into uh, let's jump right into Night's End. Okay, well, Night's End. Now, uh, I guess. I'm not. A, I haven't really been a huge fan of the main of, of the of the actual story of of Night Terrors in and of itself. But I I have enjoyed some of the tie-ins, and one of the things about Night Terrors Night's End is everything does sort of wrap up. Williamson wraps everything up, but in 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 a way that uh, I think lacks a certain amount of verisimilitude, and does so in a way that while uh, Insomnia is ultimately defeated. I think the rules keep changing in terms of what Insomnia's power set is, and it doesn't end up working all that well, but uh, but I will try to be positive in some aspects of it. First, I want to talk about uh, the covers. The main cover is, uh, cover A isn't that bad. I uh, I think, I don't know if that's Trevor Harrison's art. I think it's Harrison's art. It's not bad. It, it definitely has a nightmare feel to it that I don't mind. Uh, cover B uh, has... And I'm not even sure who the artist is on these various covers. Uh, it, it has a picture of the Blood Knight and this other... The Blood Knight that I guess I've, I've always been calling the Super Reaper, but I guess I'm wrong. The Blood Knight. And then there's, there's this other nightmare character called Swords and Stones. 
And just a quick commentary on that. One of the really disappointing things about night terrors is the, the sleepless nights were uh, boring. I mean, they just weren't particularly powerful. They didn't have a lot of gravitas. They never really, they never, they, they never impressed. They never did anything impressive. They never did anything where they stood by themselves. They stood alone. They really had no bearing. They, they really were a complete waste of time. They were a, a complete waste of narrative time. And in fact, they looked better on the covers uh, because they, they had to look good on the covers because they never looked particularly all that compelling in the comic books themselves. And they didn't have anything to do that was significant in any really any of the tie-ins um, that, that really stood out to me. So I thought that was, I thought that was unfortunate. Uh, and uh, I, it's one of these events where I think that these nightmare creatures, these nightmare characters created by Williamson, I strongly suspect that probably at some point in the future, uh, they're, they're probably going to have more more gravitas or they'll have, they'll be better used by future writers and future storylines than they were here because wow, are they forgettable in this series. It's just straight up. Um, uh, uh, there's a cover C with Dead Man tearing his face off. Again, really cool, sort of terror-filled looking covers. So these covers really are great. I, I've said before that one thing about Night Terrors is that even if, say what you will about the series, uh, some people are really loving it. So in fairness, some people are really enjoying Night Terrors because uh, the, the premise, of course, being Insomnia, whose family was killed by the Justice League, he wants the world to feel terror when they think of the Justice League. And the, the, he wants to bring terror and bring nightmares to the world so that the world experiences, you know, so he experiences the nightmare that he felt when he lost his family because of the failure of the Justice League to effectively deal with death metal, uh, even though they ultimately won at the end of death metal, uh, somewhat with Wonder Woman making that deal with the cosmic gods. Insomnia, for whatever reason, blames the Justice League for the loss of his family. And for reasons which Williamson never explained, uh, Insomnia's family was not resurrected like every other family and every every other hero in, in the universe was resurrected at the end of Death Metal, except apparently for Insomnia's family. That plot point has never been explained. We're just supposed to just sort of sort of accept that. But in any event, at the beginning of Night's End here, what uh, I will say that what Williamson does effectively is he try he sets up something for two future storylines, and that is that. Once, uh, once Insomnia now, Insomnia has now got the power of the Nightmare Stone and he's released all the nightmares of the superheroes all around the earth. And what's happened is that the people all around the earth are beginning to experience the nightmares in the images and forms of the various members of the Justice League. And so um, this will ultimately tie in and reinforce, uh, uh, reinforce the idea that the Justice League is... is um, is not a good thing. The Justice League aren't aren't particularly. They're not heroes, and you can imagine if the entire planet begins to have nightmares, and those nightmares are essentially in the form of the Justice League. Well, even when this, even when Insomnia is defeated, the people of the Earth, the citizens of the DCU, have very bad memories of the Justice League. Now they will objectively know that they're. It's a nightmare and it wasn't real, but it will still have an impact. So every time you think of Superman or Wonder Woman or Batman or Flash or Green Lantern, while normally you would think of a hero, after the events here in Night's End, 
the, the citizens of the DC universe will begin to associate the Justice League with nightmares, with their worst nightmare, because that's what insomnia does. And what Wonder Woman says at the end of Night's End here is that even though they managed to defeat insomnia, the, the fact is insomnia really won. Insomnia won the battle that really mattered. So much so that even at the end of this, uh, of this Night's End, Amanda Waller is actually very happy with how things turn out because it allows Amanda Waller to, um, I'm going to get to it here, it's going to allow Amanda Waller to, uh, fought, to pursue her campaign of her war against the superheroes. Remember what Amanda Waller, uh, Waller did, and that was, I believe, in the end pages uh, at the final issue of Dark Crisis number seven, where she basically told all the supervillains on the planet, if any of you kill a superhero, I'll give you a pardon. Now, Amanda Waller is a complete bitch, and she doesn't have the authority to give pardons. But for some reason, I guess, I thought only, you know, only the president can do that. But Amanda Waller is, let's face it, she's artificially elevated as being this massive powerhouse in the DC universe. No, she's, she, Amanda Waller appears to be behind every single major villain in the DC universe, what's going on right now, whether it's in the pages of Doom Patrol uh, or in the pages of Titans or in the pages of Justice League, uh, I mean, or, or in the in Titans or in the pages of, um, ah, heck, uh, doesn't matter. One, uh, Amanda Waller is everywhere. And it's extremely, it's extremely telling that at the end of this issue, uh, with all the chaos, uh, Amanda Waller, uh, manages to have one of her minions, uh, Bright, uh, the, the villain known as uh, Bright, managed to uh, he manages to acquire the Nightmare Stone because, of course, the the, soup, the Justice League is so incompetent they can defeat Insomnia, but they lose the Nightmare Stone. I mean, that thing is just is continuously getting lost and found. It's ridiculous, but it gets found by Amanda Waller's minion Bright, who combines it with uh, Doc with uh, the hate the Helmet of Hate that was acquired on Lazarus Island, and then you end up with a new villain at the end called Doctor Hate, who in furtherance of his machinations working with Amanda Waller, now that Justice League has been tainted, uh, they're going to be working on trying to destroy the credibility of the Titans and to attack the Titans. So they've, the Justice League, from a PR perspective, is basically taken off the playing field here in the minds of people. The people have given up their faith in the Justice League, and and that coincidentally works right into Waller's plans. And the irony is, is that Amanda Waller didn't know anything about Night Terror. Amanda Waller did not plan what Insomnia did, but it just happens to coincide nicely with Amanda Waller's agenda of destroying the reputation of the heroes and to essentially eliminate uh, superhuman metahumans across the planet to pursue her own machinations. What her machinations are, we don't know. Now, I start off talking about that because that's the most positive thing. The the where this where this comic book uh, gets uh, gets goes off the playing field for me is just just in the plotting itself. Uh, all you really need to know there's there's not much to know. Insomnia has the Nightmare Stone. He releases it, it's inconsistent. He has the Nightmare Stone. First he says that everybody everybody's nightmares are released. Then he says that. All the, uh, that all the heroes' nightmares are released. Then he says that all the heroes' nightmares are going to be in the form of the heroes themselves. So which is it? It's all over the place. At one point, uh, Insomnia resurrects Deadman's family as a gift to him because Deadman was brain dead 
at the in night in night terrors number four, but Dead Man stupidly took the Nightmare Stone to Insomnia at when he was asleep at Arkham Tower. Why would you do that? <laughs> he literally handed he he thought he was going to use the Nightmare Stone to somehow. I don't know, stop insomnia, but he he literally took it to insomnia. Again, just really bad. It's just bad writing. This doesn't make sense. It never made sense why Dead Man would take the, the Nightmare Stone right to insomnia. So insomnia, he literally gave insomnia the Nightmare Stone, and that's what caused all this. Then insomnia is thanking him by resurrecting Dead Man's family. And he has now a dead family. And I got to say, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a joke. I mean... I know that we've all we all love legacy in the DC universe, and uh, you know I, I've said this. Uh, you know, Jason and I have certainly talked about this before, and many people have made a note of it. The DC universe is is expanding with legacy. You know, the the idea we've got we've got the Batman family. We're expanding the Flash family. We're expanding you know Wonder Woman's family. We're we're you know every every fa Green Arrow is getting an expansion of his family. We we got the Blue Beetle family expanding with more different color beetles. Uh, no, no matter you know. Families are expanding here, and now Dead Man himself has a family. I mean, I mean, it just—I don't know—but it just seemed kind of this seemed like overkill to me. To I mean, Dead Man is dead, so oh, why don't you give him a dead family? Well, that seems—I think it seems dumb, but that's what happens here. And he seems to be content with that. Dead Man seems to be oh, cool. Thanks for giving me my family back. Except, of course, they're dead. They're dead just like I am. Is that really a reward? And not only that, what, it, what goes further and unexplained is that insom if insomnia can resurrect dead man's family, and they, and they look ridiculous, by the way. They all, they're all dressed like dead man, and they got the D on the belt. Like, who would do that? Like, why, what would, <laughs> why would, like, that's so stupid. Why would you make his family wear the same costume as he does? That just seems so stupid. I, you know, if, if you're going to resurrect Dead Man's family, I thought you wouldn't you want him to make him look like his family and said you you make them look as dead as he is. I'm surprised that you know Boston Brand even recognized them for God's sakes. I mean, they're dead and they look disgraceful and disgusting and they look as ridiculous as he does in that costume. In any event, so but if you, if you're going to go that far to resurrect Dead Man's family, Insomnia, Insomnia, why don't you resurrect your family? I don't get it. Why didn't Insomnia do that in the at the end of Night Terror Number Four? Why don't Why doesn't Insomnia resurrect his own family? Instead, he uses up a portion of his power to resurrect Dead Man's family. Insomnia, why don't you resurrect your family? You seem to have that power, so why don't you do that? He doesn't do it, and it's never explained why he doesn't do it. All that happens is that Wesley Dodds, they uh, they go to the Hall of Justice, and then Batman decides to give Wesley Dodds the, the Dreamstone. Well, that's a good one, Batman. You think somebody could have, somebody else during the last four or five issues, or during the numerous tie-ins, you think somebody else could have just maybe thought, hey, why don't we go to the Hall of Justice and get the Dreamstone? And fight the Nightmare Stone with that. But that's kind of what they do here. Finally. In other words, somebody finally is thinking. They, you know, the neurons are firing in the brain. Now you could, maybe there's a collective stupidity that encompassed the entire planet. And nobody thought, well, go get the Dreamstone. It's in the, it's in the Hall of Justice. But that's what they do here. They give the Dreamstone to Wesley Dodds, who is the Sandman. And, uh, you know, he uses it to battle to battle insomnia, essentially kind of to a standstill. Uh, but then Dead Man returns 
because Insomnia thinks he's taken Dead Man off the playing field by saying, here's your family, Dead Man, he's all happy, he's going to go off into the uh, whatever constitutes an afterlife, he lived with his family, but... Dead man changes his mind, comes back and says, I can't, I can't leave my friends. I have to help my fellow heroes. If I will sacrifice my having a life with my dead family. <laughs> Not much of a sacrifice if you ask me. <laughs> but he comes back and together him and Sandman defeat insomnia. And what is a touching scene? What is a touching scene is that Sandman chooses then to, instead of continuing to wander the earth, watching other people, you know, live their lives and possessing them from time to time, he decides to essentially, I think, sort of allow himself to die and pass into the afterlife and sort of embrace an inner kind of peace where he can, uh, you know, maybe find his true audience because Boston Brand, as Boston Brand, he was always looking for an audience, but really... He, he, he was always cursed after he died uh, to only be an audience of one. You know, he never really had anybody who could really notice him or care for him or really acknowledge him all that much unless he was interacting with the heroes. And in any event, so Dead Man sort of passes peacefully into the afterlife while Insomnia ends up being cursed. And, and uh, I don't know how this happened, but I think Dead Man, in an act of unbelievable cruelty... Uh, decides to curse insomnia by having his own dead family, but his own dead family decide that for whatever reason they want to eat him. So dead man's family, you know, insomnia rewards dead man by giving dead man a dead family who at least has the common decency not to try to eat dead man. But then dead man returns the favor after defeating insomnia and, and apparently cursing insomnia to be in the presence of his own dead family, but his own dead family are like walking dead zombies and they actually want to eat him in the nightmare as he suddenly burns a fiery death. So uh, why is it different? Why is one different than the other? I don't know. I don't know. The rules explaining the dream stones, the nightmare stone, why this happened or that happened is all over the place. All you need to know is that the good guys win, Justice League wins, they send Sandman back into his resting place. And then suddenly, suddenly, Batman absolutely collapses. Well, why did Batman collapse? Well, apparently he's been, he spent all that time being possessed by dead man that he's absolutely exhausted. So, you know, so uh, that causes Batman to pass out and he literally falls asleep. And as we'll discover in the first chapter of Gotham War, which we'll, I'll review after this, he actually... He falls asleep for eight weeks. He's not in a coma. He's literally just kind of sleeping. But it's a really, really deep sleep. So you might as well call it a coma. Call it whatever you want. But he's like really tired. <laughs> and so that's really it. And um, basically at the end then, we, we have Wonder Woman saying that Insomnia really won because the world is afraid of the Justice League now. They think of the Justice League like nightmares. And that's embodied at the end with an image of a young girl taken, you know, there was a young girl, at the same young girl at the beginning that had pictures of Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman and Flash and Green Lantern. And she was taking down her pictures that are on her bedroom wall of all her favorite superheroes. And she took them down, she threw them all in the garbage because the heroes now scare the crap right out of her. And, you know, that's interesting. And again, that ties in with what Amanda Waller is going to be doing because that fits into Amanda Waller's plan to get the world against heroes because she wants to basically have the villains kill them all, take them off the map for reasons which we don't quite know 
the full amount yet because Amanda Waller's motivations and agenda are always her own and rarely do we ever really figure out exactly what the hell Amanda Waller wants. Uh, and at the end, of course, we have this Dr. Hate. And so that's interesting. That's interesting. So that's how night, uh, Nightmare Night's End, Night's End ends. And... Um, I'm more curious to I'm more curious to see how this leads into Gotham War, which we'll get into, and and the consequences of what this will be for Amanda Waller's agenda to take the here superheroes off the playing field, and in particular in her ongoing agenda now that she has Doctor Hate powered up with the Helmet of Hate and the Nightmare Stone combined. Doctor Hate is a very powerful new supervillain, and this is a speculator alert. Uh, if you're a speculator, the first appearance of Doctor Hate is in this issue. And that's on the final page. And that ain't no cameo. Uh, so, yeah. There's that. So, the next one, this leads us into Gotham War. Now, with the Gotham War, the, the backup to this series, or rather the, the lead-in to this series, is in the pages of Catwoman, and certainly in, in, in pages of Batman. Chip Sardaski, the writer of Batman, and Timmy Howard, the writer of Catwoman, have sort of been... Uh, I think coordinating, it's been an extremely loose coordination. It doesn't line up all necessarily that well, but well enough that you can understand the gist of, where, of what's happening here in Gotham War. What's happened is that in the eight weeks that Batman, in the eight weeks that Batman has been asleep, when he finally wakes up, he discovers a Gotham, uh, a very different type of Gotham City. What he discovers is that, uh, lo and behold, Gotham, Gotham is uh, a safer place. The crime rate has decreased by 75%. And he finds that there's a new, there's a new boss in town. Not really a mob boss, although she is kind of a mob boss. She's not a crime boss, but she is a coordinator of crime. Certainly a certain type of crime. And that's, that's Catwoman. Catwoman's taken control. Of the, of the criminals. She's eliminated all petty thievery. She's trained them to become better thieves. She's eliminated the rapes, the assaults, the, the petty crimes in the, on the side streets. No, she's, she's taken up all these petty criminals and she's training them. She's actually training them to be better criminals. And so the streets are safer. And she's also making them give 15% of everything they steal to Gotham charities. So not only is not only is crime rate down 75%, but all these charities are getting all this money from all these lovely criminals that are, you know, you know, all these criminals. And they only rob billionaires. They don't rob poor people or middle class. They only rob billionaires because it's a Robin Hood kind of mentality, right? And there's strict no-kill policies. If you work for Catwoman, you know, and, and you pretty much have to, uh, then, then you got to follow her rules. Now, here's the kicker. All the henchmen, all the henchmen that used to work for the Riddler, the Penguin, the uh, uh, Mr. Freeze, etc., etc., well, the henchmen, they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. In fact, Gotham War opens up with, a, with a, a young sort of petty thief, a guy who just risked it all working for, uh, I think it was, uh, he screwed, you know, he got, he got screwed over by, by uh, Riddler, by Mr. Pig or Mr. Freeze. And he gets a note uh, dropped off by a cat that comes to his windowsill. And it's obviously from Catwoman. It says, if you risk your life, you deserve the rewards. And it has an address. And basically what Catwoman's doing is that she knows who all the petty thieves are. She's saying, look, stop working for these A-list villains. Come work for me. 
and you're going to get more of the spoils. Come work for me. I will train you. I will show you how to be a better thief, but there's going to be rules you're going to follow. You can't kill. You got to give some of your proceeds to charity, but I promise you, you're going to make a hell of a lot more money than you would being a henchman for the Joker or the Riddler or Mr. Pig or, uh, or it. Anyone or ventriloquist or anyone else. Enough. Come. You deserve better than this. And so that is really the gist of Catwoman's plans. And we saw hints of this plan that Catwoman has to make Gotham a safer place. We saw this in the pages of, of Catwoman by Teeny Howard. The evolution of what of Cat of what Catwoman was trying to do. And uh, you know, the reality though is that in the lead up to this, Catwoman managed to acquire a new gang, uh, her, her new, uh, Catwoman managed to acquire henchmen of her own. And the henchmen she acquired uh, were from prison because Catwoman was sent to prison. Even though she didn't do anything wrong, she refused to defend herself. She refused lawyers from Bruce Wayne. It was a very wonky, very, it wasn't a very well-written storyline by Teeny Howard. I'm not going to lie. It didn't make a lot of sense. What Catwoman did did not make any sense. Who, how many people decide to go to prison when they don't have to? When you got an airtight defense and not even the not even the lead detective thinks you did it, why would you do that? And it was never explained. It never made any sense. Uh, but I think how we're supposed to buy into it is that uh, even though it doesn't make it didn't it didn't read this way the story. But the only way to make sense is to understand that Catwoman apparently let herself get sent into prison so she could acquire certain hench women, uh, Hoops, uh, Clay Woman, uh, Marquis, and Scarpiano, these women, she acquired a different set of people to help her out. So when, and then she broke out of prison, and after breaking out of prison, uh, she then takes over Gotham by, by taking out, you know, manipulating Black Mask, controlling the five crime families, uh, setting them up, uh, she, she did, you know, she manipulated all those things so that she now is the one who really has a lot of control over the, the five crime families of Gotham. And now she's making her move with Gotham Ward here to essentially take out the, not take out the A-listers, but keep the A-listers at bay. Because now that you got the five crime families under control, you got something else to worry about. Joker, Riddler. Penguin. Now, Penguin is, he's coming up on the scene from Penguin number one with Tom King. But there's there's these other A-list villains you got to deal with. Well, how do you do that? Catwoman takes all these other, hench takes all the henchmen, the petty thieves. And now that the A-listers don't have any henchmen to hire because they're all working for Catwoman, it, it takes them off the playing field. And now... What happens here is that I'll just start at the beginning of this comic just to sort of go through this. It's sort of a review. It shows Batman waking up and Oracle is, you know, Oracle is making sure he's okay. And, and, uh, but Oracle doesn't have enough time to tell him that in terms of what Selena has done, because a lot's happened over the last eight weeks. And Oracle, it, you know, Oracle hints, well, lets him know that both him and, the Bat family knows that Batman lost his hand, that he, he lost his hand. And they know that he's been sort of getting slower and he's, he's getting, you know, he's, he's getting, he's an older Batman now. He's not as young as he used to be. And so what does Batman do immediately when he gets up, when he wakes up? He immediately goes out on patrol. I mean, he doesn't, you know, you would think he would go and, you know, maybe say hi to the other members of the Bat family or something. No, he just says, 
you know, Oracle's right there when he wakes up, but he goes, he right away starts and he, he checks out Gotham to see, cause he's afraid. What have I missed? What have I missed? Cause he's so obsessed with his mission, right? That's Batman. And even the Batman of Zorana, that his, that psych, that part of his psyche that is really diehard Batman, you know, is telling him, you know, essentially hinting, let's go check out Gotham. And they do. And right away, Batman in, in encounters two, uh, two, uh, petty thieves that he thinks are still petty. Uh, Marcus Tolliver and Stan Bevington, he knows them as being petty thieves, but he tries to stop them from doing a jewel heist and they, they manage to outwit him. They manage to escape him because it's clear they've had some training. And so right away, Batman knows that, okay, something is up, something has changed in Gotham. And what he did, and what is subsequently revealed is that Catwoman is training all these thieves. Catwoman is literally taking these thieves and she's giving them on-the-job training, like what she calls external training. And what's really interesting here is that Selena uses the language of education and university language in talking about her operations now. She talks about her graduates. You know, I mean, you know, they're they're not her fellow criminals. I mean, they're they're you know, they're her graduates. You know, and it's not like the hideout, the villain's hideout. No, it's called the training compound. You know, you know, these are she calls them her newbies and rookies. I mean, she's she's using the vernacular as if somehow she's that this is like a school. And in fact, it pretty much is. They, they got this massive warehouse. She's training these petty thieves how to be physically fit, how to stay, how to stay fit, how to work out. She's given them physical fitness training. She's given them training on how to rob banks, how to uh, and how to rob the elite. In fact, in, later on in the issue, she's she. You know, she, uh, her and her minions, you know, uh, Marquis in particular, Marquis is her sort of second in command. She's this short haired redhead who's second in command, who she met, who Selena befriended in prison. And Marquis is, is one of her second in command, helping a lot of these petty thieves become better thieves. And their goal here is to, hey, let's rob all the billionaires. You know, I mean, the billionaires live in high rises. You know, we got all the petty thieves. They're no longer roaming the streets, raping and pillaging all the, the troglodyte masses. So let's just get them to rob the rich, right? Right? So that, that should work just fine, right? Well, apparently it's kind of working. Even Oracle acknowledges that. But now Selena has heard through Oracle that Batman's woke up and she's really worried because as, as, Cow, as Catwoman says, I was hoping I'd have more time, which is kind of funny when you think about it because I'm thinking to myself, you, th you were hoping that Batman would sleep longer than eight weeks? I mean, if I was you, I'd have been happy that Batman slept for like 10 hours. Forget about eight weeks. Is this, you know, I, I think you're, you want to talk about wishful thinking in any event. But, you know, she, she's, she's concerned what Batman might think, as she bloody well should. Because, I mean, it, it's, it's absurd. But the, the true absurdity I'm going to get to here, because... The only thing more absurd than Selena thinking that, that that Batman maybe slightly could be convinced to her way of thinking just because the crime rate's gone down is that the entire Batman family, with one exception, agrees with what Selena Kyle is doing. And that's what I find most astonishing. Now, uh, eventually Tim Drake discovers that Batman, you know, Batman... Makes his rounds. He he runs into Tim Drake. Tim Drake's happy to see him. But Tim Drake also tells him, look, uh, Selena has called a meeting. And, you know, Batman's thinking, what the hell's that about? Well, then they, they go out. Uh, they, they go to this meeting. And Selena at the meeting then spells out 
for the readers exactly what the hell is going on. And she and she basically sets things up and she says, she tells them what's been going on. And uh, Selena says that, uh, she says, guys, I'm glad you all made it here. But uh, I just want you all to know, I just want to confirm some things. And of course, Batman shows up. Uh, she tells them, confirms that crime, crime is down 75%. She says all the A-listers are, are basically... Uh, all the villains are surprisingly quiet, and she's not really sure why. They're suspiciously laying low. And, and that should be a red flag right there. I'm going to come back to that. She says, she acknowledges that guys like the Joker, Riddler, et cetera, et cetera, they're lying low. They're suspiciously low. Where are all the A-list villains? <laughs> that would be my red flag. That's something that Batman doesn't bring up when he's arguing with her. Uh, she's, uh, Selena says that there's no hired help. And she implies that the Joker, Freeze, and Riddler, that they're, they're no threats if they don't have hired help. That somehow, Selena is saying that, Selena says two contradictory things in my mind. She First, she says that the, all the, the real big villains are suspiciously missing. And then she says that, well, there are no threats because they don't have any hired help. Which is absurd. How many people actually believe that the Joker isn't a threat if he can't find hired help? I mean, come on. Mr. Freeze isn't a threat just because he can't have a, hire a few minions? Come on. Even the Penguin is somewhat of a threat even without minions. You could argue that. He's a little fat bastard. But in any event, my, my point being is that Selena's argument is, I think, very, very weak. There's only one thing Selena's, Selena's method... Uh, there's only one reason to maybe second, to, to, to have second thoughts about maybe Selena Kyle's method being a good thing. And that is because, well, the crime rate has gone down 75%. But that I, I find that very, very hard to believe and too good to be true. Now, Selena's best argument is that petty alleyway robberies are down. And that's, that's an argument that she makes specifically to Batman. She says to Batman that petty alleyway robberies are down. And she's looking right at Batman when she says it. Because you got to remember that Batman's parents, Bruce Wayne's parents, were murdered in an alley. Right? So it was those petty thieves in an alley that ended up killing his parents. And, and those crimes are all but gone. They're taken off the map now because those petty crimes now, she's taking guys like Joe Chill. Or guys that are akin to Joe Chill. And she's training them to be better thieves. And so instead of them robbing and killing people, they're robbing billionaires and skyscrapers and giving 50% of their what they rob to charity. And she thinks that Batman is going to accept this or hoping that he will. I don't even accept this as a reader. This is absurd. Now, what is more abs incredible to me is the argument... That, I mean, the entire Batman family, with the exception of Damien. I love Damien. Damien is so awesome in this issue. Damien is my new favorite Bat character. I can't believe I'm saying this. For the first time, I think, in the history of Batman family, Damien is the most sane character out of all of them. For some reason, Nightwing, Oracle, Cassandra Kane, spoiler, Jason Todd, all side with Catwoman, all have no problem with, oh, okay, yeah, well, we'll just rob the rich. We'll, we'll stand by and let you train thieves to become better thieves, train them to be better fighters, better thieves, so they can rob billionaires. As long as the, the troglodyte middle class and the lower classes are fine, we're going to let you do whatever you want, Catwoman. I mean, come on, who buys into this crap? 
Well, apparently the entire Bat family does. Now, Damien, God bless his soul, basically doesn't have any of it. He, he calls the bullshit for what it is because it's absolute total hogwash. And Damien basically says, uh, you know, I'm not going to stand for this. And, and, and he bloody well shouldn't because it doesn't make any, you know, it doesn't make any sense because you can imagine you can imagine that, you know, as Damien says, all you're doing is that you're going to be training these people to be more, you know, better at what they do. How is that helping us? You're just going to, you're going to make things worse. This is a dumb plan. And just because the crime rate might temporarily go down for a period of time, sooner or later, this is, this is not going to work. And, you know, when, when Damien, uh, Damien freaks out and, uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try to get to the part here. Damien says these criminals are just going to be better trained when they slick back to their twisted masters. And then spoiler, you know, I mean, spoilers never been too bright to begin with says, but why would they go back? She's given them independence. Uh, I, seriously, look, uh, does anybody believe that if the Joker wants you to work for him, do you think that because you've been trained by Catwoman? The Joker's going to give a shit? Seriously. This is absolute hogwash. I, I don't believe this for a second. And the thing is, all the members of the Bat family seem to be taking this really seriously. You know, I mean, they're all sort of, they're seriously giving this consideration. Oracle, um, even Oracle thinks it's working. Jim Gordon's daughter. Jim Gordon is a, a Jim, Jim Gordon is all about fighting crime, going by the book. And so is Barbara Gordon. Why would she consider this? Uh, spoiler, I mean, spoiler thinking that things, you know, thinking that, well, you know, it's worth giving it, you know, contemplating it. Hogwash. You know, Tim Drake, Tim Drake and Duke, Duke are, are noticing that there's no need, there's no needless deaths of business owners who are getting shot during petty robberies versus uh, a millionaire might be missing his jewels. And so the way the way that the Bat family appears to be looking at it is, well, you know, who cares if millionaires are the only victims of crime or billionaires are the only victims of crime? You know, the most people are are feeling safe. So this is what it's it's come to. And it's it's astonishing that it's reached this point. And of course, Jason Todd. Now, Jason Todd, uh, after this meeting, sides with Selena. He goes to Selena. He goes back to Selena and, and says to Catwoman, look, you're going to need my help because there's no way Batman's going to go for this for obvious reasons. And you're going to have to help me. I will help you keep Batman off your back because... Jason Todd's not an idiot. He sees that this is going to lead to some kind of, he doesn't say, he doesn't use these words. These are my words. But Jason Todd knows this is going to be an absolute disaster. It's not going to work. Batman's not going to accept it. And of course he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. And, and so Jason Todd is on Selena's side. Now, I'm going to, part of my criticism is that I don't even think Jason Todd would agree with Selena's methods, if I'm honest. And I could, I could frame that argument and I, I might, but even if I grant you that Jason Todd would side with Selena, there's holes in this. But but let's 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 move on. So so then, what happens then? There's there's a long drawn out, prolonged, unnecessary five or six page sequence where she's having a conversation with Jason Todd. Completely unnecessary because I don't see I, I it doesn't work for me. This this doesn't fly. This is a mischaracterization in my view, even of Jason Todd, because Jason Todd's been he's past this. He wouldn't. 
I don't see Jason Todd betraying Batman like this. I certainly don't see Nightwing, Nightwing siding with Selina. Give me a break. Not in a million years. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Uh, but, you know, Batman then goes and he, and he goes to Commissioner Montoya and Com Commissioner Montoya makes the observation that crime has went down since you haven't been around Batman, suggesting that crime rates only exist because Batman exists. You know, crime only goes up because Batman's around. Batman attracts the A-list villains. When Batman disappears, the crime rate goes down. You know, it would seem to me that what what the A-list villains are, have, have actually done is that they've intentionally stayed off the playing field because Batman's not around, luring Selina into a false sense of security so that when Batman comes back, they've got PR against Batman. They got people who might be against Batman by suggesting that the crime rates down, Batman stay away. So while, so while the A-list villains can plan something epic and big, I think that's what's happening here. And um Kudos, uh, uh, if that's the case, no kudos. I mean, um, shame on the Batman family for falling into this nonsense. But God bless Damian Wayne. He doesn't fall for any of the crap and doesn't fall for it. And he, he thinks it's a disaster waiting to happen. And of course it is. Now, the thing is, the one thing that Selena Kyle might have going for her on this is the fact that Batman is, is not bringing his A game. Batman is, he's still tired. He's, he's slower than he used to be. And he's still possessed by the Batman. He still has that uh, psychotic side of him, the Batman of Zorna. And Batman is questioning himself. Batman does question himself and wonder, well, could, could we do more for Gotham? Is, is, is Selina's method better than what mine is? You know, maybe Selina, by, by letting some crime go, if you let some criminals go and you save more lives, isn't that maybe a better alternative because if if batman could save and prevent one young boy like himself when he was younger from losing some parents and all he had to do is maybe ascribe to a different way of fighting crime maybe selena has a point even though it does compromise every principle he's ever thought of himself uh, maybe if maybe you should put human life above principle maybe you should Ignore the strict the the strict application of the law and the and the crime control model and maybe look more at doing what is the most practical. Allow some crime to get a, to be successful, some criminals to be successful, and and just you know maybe uh, deal with other crime. In any event, as Batman is contemplating that, what happens is that one of the one of the petty thieves or the jewel thieves that Selina has trained ends up getting killed robbing a penthouse. And so, and we don't know who killed this thief, but I suspect it might be one of the A-list villains uh, at some point where that'll be revealed. But very clearly, Batman, dis Batman makes up his mind that no, this petty thief is dead because he listened to Selena. This petty thief had a, had a family, he had a wife, he had children, and because he ascribed to Selena Kyle's way of doing things, he's now dead because he bit off more than he could chew. He tried to steal outside his pay grade, and now he's dead, and it's Selena Kyle's fault. Batman decides he's taking, he's going to be taking, taking apart Selena Kyle's sort of empire, and that's where things I think that this is this this is why this issue is called battle lines because the battle lines are drawn and 
you can absolutely see why Batman is on the side he is and why Damien is on Batman's side. And of course, you would expect Damien to be on Batman's side. And uh, shame on uh, Nightwing, Oracle, Tim Drake, uh, Jason Todd. Uh, spoiler that they're going to side with Selena Kyle on this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I've, um, this doesn't, you know, Selena's argument that she's going to, there's going to be no violence. She's going to train criminals to, so, so that they're not violent. So there's no confrontations and, oh yes, make sure you get 15% of everything you steal to charity. Yeah. I'm sure the criminal element, that superstitious and cowardly lot will happily give 15% of what they give to charity. You can't even convince nice people. You can't convince law-abiding citizens to get 15% of what they have to charity. My God, most of us make fun of religious people who give 10% of their crap to charity. Forget about 15. You expect criminals to do this? Give me a break. This is absolute nonsense hogwash. Absolute hogwash. And uh, in any event, I'm, I really wish Jace was here to give his opinion on this. Maybe he would accuse me of being uh, flamboyant or maybe uh, getting a, a little bit, uh, maybe uh, being overzealous and ranting too much about this, but I'm stunned by this. But yet, I am compelled to admit this story, it draws me in. I'm really curious to know how in the heck this is going to uh, resolve um, because I don't know how this cannot do considerable damage to the uh, to the relationship between Batman and Selena, and uh, you know, I, by the way, I got I got to call out Selena Kyle here. At one point, while Selena Kyle is bitching out Batman, trying to make her argument, she she makes a point of saying to him that the reason why she never married him was because of his obsession with uh, being Batman and, and the city, which is absolutely not true. And I'm going to call Selena Kyle a B I T C H, because we all know that those of us who actually wanted Selena Kyle and Batman to marry at that time, which boy, oh boy, you, you avoided a bullet, Batman. But the only reason, let's be blunt, that they never got married was that Selena Kyle never showed up at the wedding ceremony. So Selena, Batman would have married you, you bitch. But he didn't because you never showed up. You were the coward. Let's, let's make that absolutely clear. That was, that's all on you, Selena. So this rewriting of history by what she did, you know, Catwoman, uh, either two possibilities. She's either strawmanning Bruce Wayne, Batman, to make a point, or Chip Sardowski never read that actual Batman run properly. But I suspect, I'm just going to call Selena Kyle a bitch and say that was on purpose by Chip Sardowski. But uh, there's no question that that wedding never took place because of uh, Selena Kyle's cowardice. Uh, and what I like about the debate between Catwoman and Batman, and I, I encourage you all to read it. I didn't actually spoil a lot of it, to be honest with you. Uh, the specific words that they say to each other, I think, are words that you could tell that it's an emotional argument for them. It's not just logical. It's an emotional appeal. Catwoman is, a, is trying to emotionally appeal to Batman. And by referencing the petty thieves and, 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 the, and the alleyways, she's trying to, to get him on her side. But then when she realizes that she's failing, then she resorts to personal attacks. And it was actually well scripted, well done by Sardaski. That's kind of what's kind of pulling me in here in terms of where this is going to go. I Again, I'm very pissed off at the Batman family for, I, I think, betraying their own character here and betraying Batman. And it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal. But in the highest regard, as Batman says to, uh, as Batman says to uh, uh, I believe it's uh, Tim Drake, 
that, you know, how can you do this? You know, everybody at this meeting is a victim of crime and I helped you overcome that. And, and, and now you, you, you're going to pick and choose what's a, what crime to stop, what crime you sh we should prefer over another. I mean, absolute hypocrisy. I'm 100% on Batman's side here and so should anybody who's on the side of justice. Uh, but hey, it is what it is. But wow, this is a, uh, I really like this issue. And even though it, it got me sort of emotionally invested, while I can criticize it, it's, it's verisimilitude to some degree. I, I hope that this encourages a lot of fun, good old-fashioned fun debate between people who love reading Batman and love reading superheroes. It reminded me a little bit of Marvel Civil War where you could sort of pick a side and then bitch to your, you, you could disagree with your friends about, you know, whose side are you on, government, government regulation of superheroes versus vigilantism, uh, you know, are you on Captain America's side or Iron Man's side. I, I kind of like this a little bit, you know, uh, because there is an argument Catwoman's side is defendable. I'm, I'm not a fan of it, but it's defensive. It, it is defendable in kind of a a weak way in my mind, but I would love to watch people and I look forward to people debating that uh, because I think it is, I think it is a lot of, uh, I think it's fun and that's ultimately what we want to get out of comic books. Okay, so uh, yeah, wow. Let me just take a break here and take a, a sip of water and then we're going to get right back into... Um, reviewing more DC Comics. All right, the next comic we're going to be reviewing is The Riddler Year One, uh, Issue 6, Book 6. Now, this is, this is the Riddler Year One based on the movie version of Riddler of, from the Batman movie. And so if you're a fan of the Batman movie and if you love Paul Dano's uh, portrayal of the Riddler in The Batman then this is definitely a series that you might, you know, you might want to uh, pick up. It's the delays on this comic book have been just insane. And I would argue, uh, well, frankly, inexcusable. Although, I mean, there's lots of, there's been lots of delays. Uh, you look at uh, Dark Knights of Steel issue 12, 21 months for that series to come out. And uh, you look at anything by Jeff Johns lately. Uh, it's just been insane. But in any event, I've not been reading this because I, I didn't like the Batman movie. And I didn't, like, I didn't like Paul Dano's interpretation of the Riddler in that movie. So I had no interest in picking this up. Every time that this would come up for review, Jace would be the one reviewing it. Uh, I straight up, I, I skim read this and I didn't understand what was happening. Uh, the art is fantastic. The art here... Uh, uh, is by Stevan Subic. And I do want to recommend this comic book, even though I've only ever skim read it, just for the the art alone, you can tell that there's, this is a, a, this is a prequel to the movie. And so this basically explains the psychological degradation of the character that would become the Riddler. In, uh, and, um, the art is truly spectacular. The layouts are so meticulous, so well planned. It's when I look at this, do you know the reason why I get frustrated when I look at this is because the art truly is fantastic. And when I think that it was wasted on this story, because I don't think anybody's buying this. <laughs> I'm sorry. My my retailer has it. I don't think my retailer ordered a single issue of this. I don't know who's 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 buying who's reading this. This should never have been six issues long. 
book six? Come on, man. You don't make a prequel. I mean, th this feels as long as the movie is. I mean, just really, really, that's just wrong. But you know what? If you're a diehard The Batman fan, then by all means, pick this up. But I got to tell you, uh, and maybe this is just me being cynical, but, you know, people who really love movies and the bat and superhero movies, uh, only about one, maybe 2% of them, I would say are even comic book fans. You go to, I, I, I'm, ask anybody, ask them if they love the Batman movie. If they say yes, ask them if they would happily read six books of this. And every, every one of these books is 30, is, is, contains 35, about 33, 34, 35 pages of story. So you're looking at six, you're looking at about 196, 200 pages of story. Would you want to read a 200 page prequel for the Riddler, for, for the Batman movie? Now, look, again, the art's fantastic. And I can tell you that it ends, it, there, there's a lot of Easter eggs. I could tell just by looking at the art. And this is why I want to give kudos to both Paul Dano, who's done his homework here. He knows the, the Easter eggs that are in the movie. I mean, he was the Riddler in the movie. Stefan uh, Subek, the, the Easter eggs in the art is incredible. So much is hidden in the art. that And, and there's very little dialogue in parts Paul Dano is letting the artist Stavon De, uh, is letting the artist uh, Stavon Subic let the art speak for itself, and it really, really works. And so, uh, I'm just I'm just not into that into the Batman lore, and uh, but I, I have to recognize talent and creative abilities when when I see it. And artistically, this is really a work of art, and. Um, I wish I would have given it more of uh, maybe a concentrated read, but I just can't. It, it's too depressing to me. It, it, it's it's literally the exact opposite of what I wanted in, in a Batman movie. And incidentally, it's the exact opposite of what the DC Universe needs right now. And I'm, I know I'm probably an outlier saying that. Everybody wants a dark Batman. I don't. I want a 1970s style Batman with more of a sense of humor and a little bit more of a Playboy style. And I think that they need to do, I really, really, truly believe they need to do that. More of a Mark Wade. Uh, world's finest sensibility for a Batman as opposed to dark, 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 and depression, depression, let's go slit our wrists type of uh, scenario. But in any event, um, it is what it is. Uh, so pick up your Riddler, dear one, Riddler, year one, if uh, it strikes your boat. It doesn't strike my fancy. But, all right, so the next, the next issue that we are going to review is Nightmare Country, The Glass House. This is issue four. Uh, this is uh, James Tiny, and I think has done a really good job with this series. The one criticism, though, that I have of it is, you know, is it hasn't been all one series. We had the Nightmare Country, The Glass House. Prior to this issue four, we had a Thessaly. Uh, the the witch one shot. Prior to that, we had a night, nightmare country. There, there, there's, there was a, a volume one series that came before that. It's also tied in somewhat to the Dead Boy Detectives and all of the Sandman stories are they're sort of somewhat connected. And uh, this is also tied in. There was there was the, the tale of the Corinthian, which is also a nightmare country, uh, and um, everything. Let, let me put it to you this way: that the story is really cool. 
Okay, I, I think it's cool, and I'm gonna. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this particular issue, but at the same time, I have to admit that I think for new readers coming into this, you're probably gonna want to read the all the all the trades here. So first, let me uh, talk about uh, Nightmare Country: The Glass House. It is written by uh, James Tiny and the Fourth. Ars Lissandro Etherin is the artist, and Patricio Del Pesce does the the colors. And um, what's curious, what's happening here is there is, for those who watch the Sandman uh, series on TV, if I was to sum this up, I'll say there is the, there is this character called the Corinthian who's got like teeth for eyes. It, you know, when he opens his eyes, it looks like a set of teeth and he looks, he's a really creepy character and he's kind of a. He's kind of a serial killer, and in in the first volume series, uh, the Sandman essentially uh, ended up linking the Corinthian to the soul of this woman by the name of Madison Flynn, who was murdered by who was murdered uh, by this other character who is, I think, tied into uh, one of the other members of the Endless who are trying to take over. I think the Dream Realm because we've got. Morpheus, who is the Sandman, of course, and he controls the dream realm. And the other members of the Endless are death, delirium, desire, despair, destiny, and destruction. And one of those members of the Endless, I think, is making a power play to overturn Morpheus and, 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 over, and get all his power. And that's essentially what's happening here. And so we, in, this particular, uh, in this particular issue, we've got Thessaly the Witch, who... Uh, is confronting one of the writers who is writing the screenplay for the life of Madison Flynn. And Madison's, Madison Flynn's soul is tied to the Corinthian, uh, by, and that's by, by the decree of the Sandman. So that way the Corinthian can't kill anybody uh, unless Madison Flynn agrees that it's okay. And Madison Flynn is a, she's a good person as opposed to the Corinthian who isn't so much a good person, all right? But the powers that be here, there's this corrupt corporation that's trying to orchestrate the end of the world that I don't know who controls it. It's maybe hinted that it could be destruction or, or despair or delirium or one of the more nefarious forces of the endless. And what's, uh, what happens in this issue is as Thessaly and Max, the writer, she's, Thessaly is trying to tell Max, look, Max. They want you to write this story, but the, the minute we leave this boardroom, they're going to kill you because they, they, there's more at play here that the only reason they want you to write this story is that they're following a ritual. It's very ritualistic. They don't actually need Max, this, this character by the name of Max who works for this corporation. Uh, and there's this evil CEO, Teague is his name. He wants Max to write the script for Madison Flynn's life story. Madison Flynn now being this, she's in the body of a cat. Her soul's in the body of a cat. And she's linked to the Corinthian. Why is all that? Why is it playing out this way? Well, these, these nefarious forces, and we're not sure who they are, they're, they're playing out a ritual that even though they don't need this Max character to write the script for Madison Flynn's story, because they already know it, 
they need to do it for ritualistic purposes. And Thessaly, the witch, is not sure exactly why, but she knows that she needs help. And so she calls upon Lucien, who is the library, who is the librarian for the Sandman, <laughs> to basically help her find a particular book so she can become more powerful. Meanwhile, the Corinthian is tr is trying is being manipulated by one of these nefarious forces, and they're telling him, Corinthian, look you know, come and work for us, you know, come and kill for us. And Corinthians says, look, I can't, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not even going to think of talking to you unless you can tell me and promise me that the cat is dead. Is If Madison Flynn is dead, if that cat is dead, then I'd be free. But I can't, you know, basically Corinthian is saying I'm useless so long as that cat's still alive. And I don't want to piss off the Sandman. And so I'm not talking to you guys because this cat's still on the, for so long as this cat's still on the playing field, I, that cat has the soul of Madison Flynn. Madison's soul is tied to me. I can't do any killing unless she says so. She's not likely to say so. So just stay away from me. I don't want to piss off the Sandman. Well, that's kind of what, uh, now that's sort of where we're at. That just so happens that Thessaly and Max do manage to escape and they're now in the safety of, of they're near the Sandman. And the, the issue ends with, with, the crow talking to Morpheus, the Sandman, saying, aren't you going to make your appearance? And it appears as if the Sandman himself, Morpheus himself, is scared, saying, I don't want to reveal myself yet because not until I know what they have planned. We still don't know who they is exactly. We don't know that. So that's yet to be revealed. But if you've been reading the story so far, you, you're likely invested in it. I think I've been enjoying it. I've actually been, uh, I think the art is the art is a little uh, is a little bit maybe too stylistic in parts of this narrative, but for the most part, I, I have to admit that I think uh, Lissandro Etherin's art's pretty good. Patricio Del Pesce on the colors, it does work. I do love uh, all the covers are fantastic as they always are. Cover A, B, and C, they're really good, and it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, Nightmare Country, if you haven't jumped on board. Sandman, the Sandman universe for DC yet. You might want to wait till the trade comes out probably in about four or five months. That way it's easier to read all in one trade because I don't think that these that these things are being published all. I don't know if the sales on this is all that high, but I, I wish they were. Um, I, I wish this series success because I think James Tiny has been doing a really good job on this series and it's not getting the attention that it deserves, quite frankly. Okay, so the next comic we're going to review is Catwoman Uncovered, number one. Catwoman Uncovered. And this just duplicates all the many issues of the covers featuring Catwoman that have graced the covers of various DC comics over the last few years, the more prominent ones. There's some really nice covers from various artists. Quite frankly, most of them, I there's a good number of them I simply don't recognize. Uh, but some of them are really good. I think this one's by Jeff to call, uh, for those listening on the podcast, uh, I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll maybe just describe these names. We got Adam, Adam Hughes. We got Frank Cho. We got, we got a lot of really good artists, uh, Nakamura and, uh, just, uh, and in between some of these cover pages, we have, uh, we've got Catwoman giving sort of, uh, sort of guiding the story as all these covers are shown there's there's no there's no rhyme or reason to these covers quite quite frankly they're just uh they're just really great cover artists from art germ to um uh lee bermejo and um i'm trying to find 
yes, not all these covers have actually names uh, on them, which is really unfortunate. Why do they, you know, they name, they put the name of some of the artists on some of these pages and then they omit it on others. Um, Chris Anka is another cover artist. Uh, Wu, Wu Chel Lee, another artist. Uh, again, uh, Art Germ Lao is a really, uh, really good one. Uh, Sway, Sway Art. Uh, pardon me, Joshua Sway Swabi, uh, Jim Ballant, um, Susie Maka, Susie Maka, uh, Stefan Sejic. Uh, I mean, some, some again, some really sexy covers. Uh, a lot from art, or probably art germ is probably the most prominent. Uh, some really provocative ones. One by again, another one by art germ Lao, uh, Jenny Frizen, uh, Rose Besh. Uh, by Susie Malka again. Uh, you, you see, a lot of these names are being repeated for obvious reasons. Jeff DeCall, simply because he's that good. Joshua Sway Swabi again. Uh, of course, Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson. And uh, Susie Malka. A lot of these covers, what, what I like about them, and, and the reason why they, I'm glad that they maybe put them in a Catwoman Uncovered compilation like this is because, frankly, these are issues that, you know, 95% to 99% of comic book uh, collectors will never buy these com the comics upon which these, cover these covers existed because these are, these are ratio covers. These are ratio covers. Uh, Covers, not variant covers, ratio covers. And the difference between a ratio cover and a variant cover, uh, a variant cover you can buy for a dollar above cover price uh, or cover price. But a ratio, no, you, you're spending 30 to $50 uh, because it's a 1 in 10 or a 1 in 25 or a 1 in 100 or 1 in 150 or whatever it might be. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm against that, but I, I rant against this nonsense of these types of covers, charging more for a cover. In my view, if if you have a if you have fantastic art, I don't know why you wouldn't go out of your way to make it the same price on all of them. Um, I mean, that is to say, I do know why. It's it's a marketing gimmick. They need people to they need to justify the speculators who are amazingly, in my view, foolish enough to play that game to put out extra money and just lose their money because it's just. You know, in the long run, there's just no money in in these ratio variants. It's it's there. There just isn't. Um, time is going to prove me right on that. I, I think it already has. If you want to be blunt, going back going back five ten years, the the the, the lack of return on investments uh, is I think insane. I think you're crazy to buy ratio variants unless you get them for cover price. Um, I actually think it should be illegal to charge more than cover price, but that's another topic. Um, that's the lawyer in me talking, but you know I'll, I'll give you my fair trade, fair trading act argument. Uh, you know when when somebody asks, but why would they? It's 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 a boring legal argument. In any event, uh, I'm just going to go on here. There's lots of uh, there's lots of covers. You guys can pick it up if you like. Let's just go on. The next issue I want to review is uh, is Superboy and uh, pardon me here. Uh, let me see. Yeah, the next issue that we're going to be reviewing is Superboy and the Man of Tomorrow, issue five. All right, guys. Uh, in this issue, Connor Kent, uh, Connor Kent comes into his own, and he 
manages to defeat Trav. He manages to come back and defeat Trav. Uh, Connor is actually uh, Con- Connor actually he, he failed to stop Dominator X on the planet Dissidia last issue, and he's all depressed about that. And Dominator X has this, this small little creature called Infinity that he's trying to protect. And Trav is tra- and this Trav character is trying to kill. Trav is a member of the Cosmeteers that betrayed. Uh, Superboy betrayed him, and uh, essentially wants to, uh, you know, believes that he he killed Superboy, and basically he wants to. Trav is all about using lethal force. He wants to kill the Dominator X, and whereas uh, Connor wants to maintain his moral compass. And Connor, from the beginning of this series, the the hero's journey that Connor is on is that Connor basically left the Earth looking for adventure. He wanted something exciting to do because on Earth, let's face it. Connor Kent is kind of a redundancy, right? And so he basically took off, threw on his leather jacket, took off in his base, ended up having some adventures with the Cosmeteers. One of the members of the Cosmeteers is Trav, betrayed them all, and this Trav is basically going ballistic and he wants to kill Dominator X and this Infinity character that the Dominator has. And the Dominators are all about cloning. The Dominators are all about uh, uh, cloning superheroes and cloning them for the purposes of creating sort of a master army to basically take over the universe. That's what the Dominators do. Trav wants to kill the Dominator. Now, Trav also has a sort of a, I guess you could say it's a glorified mind stone on his forehead, and he uses it to control the, 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 the troglodyte masses, as I always like to call them. And ultimately, this this issue, uh, writer, uh, I, sh- I should say the writer here, Danny, uh, pardon me, uh, Kenny Porter, does, I, I, he actually does a reasonably good job entertaining uh, entertaining me in this. I, I actually, I didn't mind it. I should say the, um, I'm trying to find the, yeah, they don't, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be the, the credits here don't really seem to be helpful. Um, pardon me. Uh, Janoy Lindsay is the, does the art color and, uh, and the inks on this and does a reasonably uh, good job. I thought the art was really good. I thought the coloring actually was really good. I love the backgrounds. And so kudos to uh, Lindsay on the art. And Kenny Porter on the script, what uh, what I find, what I like about this is that it, in this story, Connor comes into his own and he realizes that uh, he can inspire hope for the victims of Dominator X. And he's got to stop being the, 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 the you know, he's got to stop being the, the, child of yesterday and start being the man of tomorrow, uh, which is what the series is actually called, Superboy, the man of tomorrow. So this is him sort of embracing the the final aspects of his hero's journey that he, he's got to stop thinking about himself because Connor Ken was, in, was sort of embracing a form of narcissism in terms of putting himself and his own self-image ahead of the best interests of people. And it's a funny thing, what, what Connor, Connor discovers here is that while he he feels he was being kind of a narcissistic bastard in, in different aspect elements of the story, he was still helping people and he still managed to get people to care for him. And he still managed to inspire hope, notwithstanding the darker angels of his nature. And, and so he sort of embraced being the best that he could be by the end. And he takes on Trav and he manages to defeat Trav. He rips the, the mind, the, I'm calling it the mind stone, <laughs> out of Trav's forehead. And he manages uh, to defeat Trav. And unfortunately for Trav, Trav ends up getting 
killed in an explosion uh, uh, in uh, in a telekinesis explosion uh, where where Superboy was trying to uh, save some lives. Uh, the the explosion that resulted actually ended up killing Trav. So that the only thing left of Trav was his skeletal remains and the skeletal, the spinal column. The uh, the spinal column of of the remains of Trav ends up crawling into a clone, a, a Dominator tube where there's a clone of a Kryptonian clone uh, in the tube, and he ends up taking over the body of of another clone that looks an awful lot like Superboy, and he says, uh, you know, well he's 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 now. Now Superboy has another clone that looks just like him, but it's controlled by Trav, his uh, former ally and now enemy. And so there's one more issue to go. It's not bad. It's not bad. I think I still think Kenny Porter did a good job here. I think he's a good soldier for DC. He's learning the ropes. He keeps getting better and better. Uh, and I think they, they put some faith in him in this series, and I think he did a good job. And I think, you know, uh, this is how you do it, DC. You got to have these... Writers get their feet wet, put them on titles like this, on the less important titles. Let them, you know, figure figure out the wrinkles and and gradually elevating them to bigger game. And um, because I think uh, I, I think he's not, he's done not a bad job here. And it'd be interesting to see what what series Kenny Porter is going to do next. And I actually think that for those fans of Connor Kent, I. Uh, I think this is a this is a fun series. I've had I now I do have some friends who are fans of Connor Kent that seem to have issues with this series. I don't know why. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Jason and I have reviewed this series every issue, and it's we've enjoyed it. It's 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 a fun series. I'm not sure what people are expecting. I actually think this has the voice. I think Kenny Porter has nailed the voice of Connor Kent. I think he's this. This reminds me of the of the of the kid of the of the original Superboy in the leather jacket, uh, based out of Hawaii back in the early days of reading. You know, post death of post Superman Returns or the return of Superman after his death. So I I think he's done a good job here in nailing the dialogue and the voice of Connor Kent, and I think it's uh, I think it's uh, yeah, it's decent. So it's probably worth checking out. And all right, so. The next series we're going to be reviewing is Doomsday Special Action Comics Presents. Oh my God. That's what I said. Oh my God. Say it again. Oh my God. There you go. Uh, now, where did this Doomsday Special come from? This this sort of seemed, it felt like it to a little bit to me like this sort of this is a series that sort of this came right out of the blue this is like a one-shot doomsday special and uh, the, the motto seems to be he who rules in hell so i'm thinking to myself really is this is doomsday now going to be given hell is is, is doomsday going to be the new ruler of hell well that's that's interesting and it would appear that that kind of does seem to be kind of where they're going with this now the last time we had we we saw doomsday was actually in the pages of Lazarus Planet. If you recall the Lazarus Planet, that that actually it was actually a one shot. It was a the Lazarus Planet event had a series of one shots, and one of the one shots was actually called Lazarus Planet. And in that story, Martian Manhunter uh, and a new character by the name of Raphael Ars, an African American character, Raphael Ars, and Martian Manhunter 
uh, battled Doomsday because Doomsday was trying to resurrect himself through the memories of Metropolis, and it was a it was a that it was a story written by Dan Waters, and this Doomsday special is also written by Dan Waters with art by Eddie Barrows. And what's interesting here is Dan Waters expands on his Lazarus Planet story because that the premise is that Doomsday unsuccessfully tried to resurrect himself through the collective memories of the citizens of Metropolis and was trying to use the, and trying to access through the mind of Martian Manhunter Jeff, uh, John Jones, who was a telepath. And this other telepath, this Raphael Ars was an ordinary citizen who was, who was given telepathic abilities because of the Lazarus frame. And this Raphael Ars sacrificed his life to prevent Doomsday from doing that. Well, what's revealed here is that once Doomsday was defeated, his once Doomsday's attempt to resurrect himself through the collective memories of the citizens of Metropolis, once he was defeated, Doomsday ended up going to hell. Well, the problem is that when Doomsday got to hell, the, the devil himself, uh, who was actually... Lucifer, but they can't call him Lucifer because they already have a Lucifer in the DC universe. So they call Lucifer first of the fallen. So it's first of the fallen is, is the ruler of hell. Really a screwed up DC universe here because we have Neuron. Now we have first of the fallen. We have Lucifer. I mean, we got, we got multiple different, we, 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 I thought we have, we have Hades. We have, we got different versions of hell, different, there's different levels of hell. Uh, and he, and different levels of hell are actually revealed in this story. So we got multiple different. We got the nth level of hell. We got we got Hades. We got wrath. We got we got different levels of hell. We got different types of demons. We got different. So it's kind of a hodgepodge bunch of nastiness. All you need to know is that when when Doomsday ends up in hell, Doomsday upsets the balance of hell, and. What happens is that Doomsday called uh, Doomsday upsets the balance of hell so badly that the first of the fallen basically calls upon Martian Manhunter and Supergirl Kara, kind of pulls them in to to hell by saying, "Look, I need you to get rid of Doomsday for me because the problem that the devil has, the problem that the first of the fallen has, is that you know, uh, is that the people of hell might start." They're starting to believe in Doomsday. Doomsday is so powerful that the first of the fallen might not be able to defeat Doomsday in battle for for the for to be the ruler of hell. And the problem that this causes in regard to the hierarchy within hell is that if the first of the fallen dons his armor to fight Doomsday, the moment he puts his armor on on. The, the the soldiers of heaven will be, will begin to believe that the devil is preparing for battle and that will lead to a battle between heaven and hell. So the first of the fallen, the devil here, he doesn't want to put his armor on if to fight doomsday because that would cause even greater problems. Now he's very arrogant. First of the fallen makes it quite clear that oh I mean, he could defeat doomsday. But he, he can't be the one to defeat Doomsday. What he wants, he wants Kara, Supergirl, and Martian Manhunter to defeat Doomsday for two reasons. Number one, it, he doesn't have to do it. 
And he, and that way, he's, if he does it, it might lead to a war between heaven and hell. And secondly, it will humiliate Doomsday. Make Doomsday look bad. And if you make Doomsday look bad in hell, then none of the other minions in hell, the citizen, the people who end up going to hell, none of them will believe in Doomsday because Doomsday will be humiliated and they will then continue to worship and honor and respect the devil himself as opposed to doomsday. That's kind of it in a nutshell how I would explain it. Now the art here by Eddie Burroughs is absolutely fantastic. I love how brave Kara here is here. She's super brave. The way that Kara battles Doomsday, she's as brave. I mean, she has this awesome armor that she dons, and I don't know, it's almost like the, it's the devil's armor that she and she's she's fighting Doomsday with it. She looks amazing. Eddie Burroughs' art is just fantastic. I love it. She's just as brave as Superman was when Superman was battling Doomsday. There's a there's a fan, there's a really good conversation between Clark Kent and Kara at the beginning. Where, where Clark Kent tells Kara how how unbelievably difficult it was when he fought Doomsday, how how he felt like death warmed over. He felt that he had nothing left to give, but he's never felt that tired and absolutely exhausted in his life. And uh, he says, he basically tells, he, he tells uh, Kara that on a physical level, he said, for my body and soul, there have been few darker moments than trading punches back and forth with this monster I knew was going to kill me. Each swing being a dead weight, a desperate crashing thing, and then everything went black. And that's how Superman remembers his passing. And uh, Martian Manhunter calls upon Kara because Martian Manhunter wants Kara to help him because Martian Manhunter doesn't want to take Superman with him to hell because he doesn't want to traumatize Clark. He doesn't want to risk traumatizing Clark because this was a monster that killed him. But so he wants to take Kara. And now Kara, you can imagine how brave Kara has to be. And that's how brave Kara is here. That's what I love about um uh, Dan Waters' portrayal of Supergirl here is that Supergirl is willingly joining a Martian Manhunter to go into the depths of hell where they confront Doomsday and Kara's got to know the possibility that she could die at the hands of Doomsday. After all, he did kill her cousin and at, at one, one time. And so it's very well done. The art is fantastic. The battle sequences are just great uh they're they're colorful they're the the use of uh, the, the, just the pacing and just the use of uh the use of the, the framing devices in in the choreographed fight scenes where doomsday is throwing martian manhunter against the walls of hell and just uh just the the, the battles and the 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 you can see you can see the the looks of terror on the face of the citizens of hell as they're watching this battle take place and as doomsday becomes more and more powerful every time remember every time that doomsday gets killed he resurrects and he's more powerful than ever before and so you can imagine how powerful doomsday is going to be the longer he stays in hell because he there might be many forces in hell that are capable of killing doomsday but eventually they're not going to be able to kill doomsday because he's going to be more powerful than them so this is a legitimate concern for the first of the fallen here. It almost seems inevitable that Doomsday will eventually take over hell. Now, based on the cover of the Doomsday special, where it shows Doomsday sitting on a makeshift throne, I think it's fair to say that sooner or later, Doomsday is going to be the one who rules hell and defeat the first of the fallen. But that does not happen in this one-shot special. In fact, what happens at the end is that a Martian Manhunter 
and Supergirl do manage to defeat Doomsday in a very clever way and and in a in a way that a kudos to Dan Waters he actually has Martian Manhunter and Supergirl inspire the citizens of hell all these people that are were sent to hell because they're evil and horrible people she appeals to the to them and saying look if 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 doomsday becomes so powerful if if your belief in doomsday becomes so powerful or too powerful he'll become real and he'll be able to access the real world and he'll be able to kill your loved ones and your loved ones will experience a hell uh, that you could help them avoid uh, by by helping us defeat Doomsday. And what all the souls of hell do is that they they pile up and they create a doorway. They become, there's a basically, the doorway to hell becomes a door of the citizens of the of the people who make up hell the souls of the dead create this door that doomsday can't penetrate and escape from and so it's actually the souls of hell themselves these evil souls don't even they don't want doomsday to escape hell and it was kara and martian manhunter appealing to their hope to save the the waking the humanity to prevent Doomsday from doing that. I thought that was excellent. I thought kudos to Dan Waters. Dan Waters has been doing a real good job lately. I really like the job he was doing. I love what he did. I give it a 9.5 out of 10. Uh, his work on Detective Comics, uh, on the uh, Night Terrors Parts 1 and 2, Detective Comics did a really good job. And uh, I got to say, it was it was very well done. And the, the first of the fallen here is very pleased when Doomsday can't escape. The moment that Doomsday can't escape... Yeah, uh, he sends Kara and Martian Manhunter back to the real world because Doomsday's been defeated. And so because Doomsday's been defeated, that means that the people of hell continue to believe in the first of the fallen and not Doomsday. And so Doomsday remains defeated for now, but the final page shows Doomsday continuing to relentlessly smash his fist into that the door of hell. And remember, uh, just as a callback to that classic that the classic issues of Superman leading up to the death of Superman, where it showed every issue, you'd have that teasing fist slamming into the wall until Doomsday eventually escaped. And when he escaped, of course, that resulted in the death of Superman. What's going to happen if Doomsday becomes the ruler of hell? Uh, that's the big question. Now, the second, the, the, the other story, also written by Dan Waters, is drawn by the artist, uh, draw art by Max Rayner and... Um, or by Max Rayner. I should say that Dan, I think Eddie Barrows and Eber Ferreira were, did the art on the on the original story. But Max Rayner does the art for the backup. And the backup deals with, uh, actually deals with Raphael Farce, who ends up in hell as well. And Raphael Farce was, managed to stop Doomsday with Martian Manhunter. But he died. He died in the real world. And he was also sent to hell. But in this backup story, he basically becomes the Superman of hell. He becomes uh, the character, he, he becomes, his character will be known as um, uh, Bloodwind. And so that's pretty cool. So he ends up fighting some demons in hell and he begin, he acquires the Doomhounds, the two dogs that look like Doomsday. He acquires them. And because what essentially what has happened is that uh, Raphael gets, what happened is that when Raphael died, he not only attained some of the aspects of Doomsday, but he attained some of the aspects of Martian Manhunter. And so he's... Raphael actually brought Doomsday to hell uh, 
it was suggested in the narrative, which is really weird. I don't know how he could have done that, but there, there's probably some connection between Bloodwind and Doomsday, just like there's a connection between Bloodwind, between Raphael and Martian Manhunter, and that prompted him to turn into Bloodwind, where he's accessing some of the powers of Martian Manhunter, which is very interesting. And he ends up taming the Doomhounds, who will who will become essentially his two pet sidekicks, and Bloodwind essentially now will roam the different levels of hell as basically the Superman of hell, which, which is interesting. I gotta, gotta admit, you know, you know, we gotta admit we're getting a lot of these DC has done a lot of, a lot of universe building in the last three or four years. They've, they've created a lot of legacy characters and they're creating with the Lazarus plit, the, the Lazarus event, they're creating, they brought more characters onto the playing field and Bloodwind is one of them. And now they've expanded the mythology of the hell of the DC universe by adding Bloodwind as the super, essentially as the Superman in quotations of hell and suggesting that at some point uh, Doomsday himself will become one of the rules, uh, uh, rulers of one of the levels of hell. So Interesting stuff, and it's going to be uh, cool to see how that, uh, how that, how this plays out moving forward. Would this, will this lead into a particular event of some kind? I don't know, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Okay, our final comic that we're going to review is the Gnort Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Um, for those who are watching on YouTube, uh, you're welcome. I had to basically cut out the Adam Hughes. I, I had to I had to put the Adam Hughes Power Girl uh, image smack dab center. I mean, look at that rack. You know what's funny about DC Comics is just the nature of the beast. They've naturally in the in the spirit of diversity and everything else, they want to obviously continue to be as respectful as possible with women, and they want to you know diversify and you know, spread the joy and spread the talent and get female talent and everything else and diversify absolutely all, all the power to them. And yet what I find funny is that we'll, we'll get issues that will like uh, Power Girl issues, Fire and Ice is a, is a series that's going to be coming up, you know, where they go to Smallville and, and we got all these sexy covers. And yet on the interior art, the women are basically desexualized. You know, their breasts are made smaller. They're they're made to look, frankly, like average women, which uh, which is exactly what they shouldn't do because on the covers they're completely exaggerated. Which is how we white males like them. And I'm quite certain you you don't have to be a white male. You can be a purple, green, yellow one, and still want Adam Hughes sized breasts on Power Girl. Thank you very much. So. Now, why do they call this the Gnort Illustrated Swimsuit Edition? Why don't they just call this the DC swims, DC Comic Book Swimsuit Edition? I'm, I don't know why they call this Gnort. You know, is it for trademark reasons? I'm, I'm not sure. what. Why give Gnort the attention? Is this important? I don't know. Who is Gnort, you ask? Gnort is a Green Lantern. Uh, not only is he one of the intergalactic protectors known as the Green Lantern Corps and the Guardian of Space Sector 68, or 69, the extraterrestrial Emerald Avenger Gnort 
Janice Mocker has also been a member of the Dark Stars, the Justice League, and its offshoots, the Justice League International and Justice League Antarctica. But recently, Gnort made the leap from superheroic fisticuffs to high fold and high fashion, with a magazine centerfold that's breaking sales records and earning this fuzz face rising star accolades across the globe and beyond. What I just read from you was from the middle of this Gnort special... Uh, this Gnort special uh, international swimsuit edition, and yeah, I, I got to tell you, I uh, I'm 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 baffled by this. I can tell you this: I will not be getting cover A. I don't know why anybody would want Gnort on the cover of anything. The last time we saw Gnort, he was actually in the pages of uh, the Human Target by Tom King, where Gnort actually spoke with. Um, Christopher Chance, actually, uh, before oh, Pearl Christopher Chance died, uh, by the way, by Human Target. It was probably also the best looking that Gnart has ever been, thanks to the uh, thanks to the wonderful art of uh, Greg Smallwood. But in any event, uh, this is a fun issue. But the covers are, I mean, this look at this cover B with Wonder Woman, huh? God damn. You know, some of these, the, the art here is fantastic. Uh, some of it's not very good at all. Uh you know, this is uh, J Joseph, uh, or I guess uh, J. Scott Campbell with uh, Catwoman and uh, Bruce Wayne. Uh, of course, this is this is the full Adam Hughes one, which is, oh my God, look at that. Amazing. That's definitely the one I want, but it's probably a 1 in 25, so I won't be able to get it. But uh, yeah, uh, many, many different images of uh, sexy women and uh, sexy heroes, uh, men and women on the beach. And we get, we do get, there are two stories in this compilation. One is by, uh, the first uh, one is by um, Julie, uh, Julie and uh, Julie Benson and uh, Julie and Shauna Benson and art by uh, Megan Hetrick uh, called Baywatch. And it basically involves the birds of prey, the huntress, black canary, vixen, Barbara Gordon. Basically, take out the penguin. Somebody apparently has uh, the penguin owned owned beachfront property in Gotham, and somebody bought the beachfront property from Penguin against. You know they must have corporately taken over the beach somehow and robbed him of it. And so the penguin is trying to get, uh, is trying to destroy the beach by destroying the pipeline that is under the, under the ocean near the beach. And, uh, the, the, it's, it's fun. It's a fun issue. There's a great scene with the huntress running, like doing the Baywatch scene where huntress is running just like on Baywatch. You know, I, I kept waiting for David Hasselhoff to show up as I'm reading the, the issues here. It was kind of comical. It was kind of fun. You know, all the guys are checking out huntress. I mean, cause you know, I mean, the huntress is pretty hot. And when I say huntress, I mean the birds of prey huntress. I don't mean the huntress. I don't mean Batman and Catwoman's daughter in the pages of Justice Society. I don't mean that. I mean, this is Helena Bertinelli, the actual, uh, the, you know, the Earth designate zero huntress. And, you know, looking good. Uh, Megan Pe Petrick, uh, Megan uh, Hetrick's art is, is really good. And yeah, uh, very well done. And a lot of a lot of fun had by all. And it's always good to see, you know, sexy, sexy women. It was, you know, again, this is just a fun issue. What I like about this is that if you're going to, they're, they're showing us a bunch of sexy covers of uh, really cool looking covers. Uh, some are ridiculous. I mean, Batman wearing a, a Batman mask and shorts is probably one of the most ridiculous things you'll ever see. Why would Batman, Jace mentioned this before too, and I agree with him. Why would Batman just wear shorts on a beach 
and nothing else but then his mask. Like, that's ridiculous. It, and it looks ridiculous. Uh, uh, but the, some sexy, you know, again, art germ covers. There's obviously Nightwing there, which, you know, I mean, uh, women are going to buy, probably buy this issue just for that alone. And some, some really sexy, some really sexy art. There's another art by Helene uh, Lenoble, which is really nice. Another more art by uh, Raphael Sandoval and Matt Herms. Uh, and of course by Frank Cho and uh, Otto Schmidt has got a, a double page spread or what was used for a double page spread, I think for the pages of Action Comics, for the covers of Action Comics a couple uh, issues ago. A sexy picture of Aquaman, uh, a nice uh, Catwoman Jeff DeCall cover, which was actually already in Catwoman Uncovered, which we already reviewed. Uh, there's another ridiculous, uh, great art by Pete Woods, but ridiculous that Batman would wear his mask and... <laughs> <laughs> it just looks silly. Uh, but in any event, uh, and then, of course, we had a, another really crazy picture of Gnort himself. And then there's a profile of Gnort, which tells you a bunch of crazy things about him, his favorite things. I mean, everything's done as a joke here. And then we get the final story written by Steve Orlando called Out There about Midnighter and Apollo. And Midnighter and Apollo showing affection to each other on the beach. And they end up taking, they end up uh, stopping uh, stopping the brain and Mala from escaping the, uh, from prison on a, uh, on a, on a cruise. Somehow they're on a cruise, but they're being held. They're, they're prisoners on a cruise and they want to escape. Uh, and, uh, Midnighter and Apollo prevent them from escaping. But, uh, Mala is in love with the brain and Mala talks throughout the issue about how much he loves the uh, the brain, and the brain talks about how much he loves Mala, and the brain tells that to Midnighter. Uh, the brain tells that to Apollo. Mala tells that to Mar uh, to uh, the Midnighter, and they can maybe relate a little bit because you know Mala and the brain basically say you don't know what it's like to be so different and perceived as different, and people can't believe that you love each other. Uh, because they're a gorilla and an actual living brain. Well, of course, Midnighter and Apollo probably know something about discrimination, both of them being of the LGBTQ community. And so they end up, you know, seeing to it that when the Malan brain are apprehended, that they're incarcerated together because they love each other. So there's that. So that was a nice feel-good story by Steve Orlando uh, with uh, really good art by, really good art by Paul Pa Palazier and Norm Rap Rapmund uh, Inker Andrea Adriana Lucas uh, colorist Rob Lay letterer, and uh, so it's uh, yeah very well done and more more gorgeous covers at the end by by Jenny Friesen uh, Trish Mulville uh, Megan Huang and um, Manuela Lapicino and um, a couple other ones uh, one from Bab Star. And Amanda Connor and Paul Mounds. So there's a little bit of love for everybody. Michael Allred and Laura Allred, as well as Francis Manipal and uh, Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson and Joe Quinos and Jenny Frizen again. And that really kind of sums it up. And that kind of takes us to the, uh, that sort of takes us to the end, quite frankly. That sort of sums it up for the week. Now, I guess the big question becomes, uh, what is my pick of the week? Well, I got to say that uh, my pick of the week, uh, even though it frustrated the hell out of me, it really did. It frustrated me to no end. I would have to say that my pick of the week, uh, 
I'm 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 a little bit torn here, but I'm gonna go that my, my pick of the week is a tie between Gotham War and uh, let me just uh, let me just bring on my pick of the week here. So it's a tie between Gotham War and I also really liked the Doomsday Special. I, th I thought what Dan Waters did with the Doomsday Special was really good. I'm curious to know what the future of Doomsday is in hell. I thought the portrayal of Martian Manhunter and Supergirl was fantastic. I loved his portrayal of Supergirl. I think he understands the character. He nailed how hopeful she was, how powerful she is, how willing she is to give her life, just like her cousin. And I really liked uh, Bloodwind, this, the new Superman of hell. I, I really liked the debut. Uh, that's a speculator alert uh, for that character. I think it worked very well. Well, as I'm actually talking, I'm inclined to say that my, my pick of the week is likely Doomsday Special. I might give it the edge over Gotham War uh, only because I, I, I take issue with, I, I have a hard time with the verisimilitude of Gotham War. I don't quite buy into the characterization of the Batman family basically shunning Batman like they do and not agreeing with them. I just, I just, not that they shunned him per se, but that the fact that they even considered what Selena was doing, I just, it, it didn't sit well with me. But I'd be really curious to know what your guys' thoughts are on that. You can leave the comments below uh, or let, uh, uh, communicate with Chase or myself on, on Twitter and I'll leave the links below for that. And so, guys, that's it. You can, um, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Metropolis40. You can follow Jace uh, on Twitter at uh, The Comic Source. You can also go to The Comic Source. Just type in The Comic Source podcast. The Comic Source is wherever podcasts are. You can go and you can listen to this as a podcast. You don't, certainly don't have to watch it on YouTube. In fact, I believe most of you actually listen to this as a podcast, which is cool. Uh, just get your DC comics. There's there's, uh, there's some good comics this week. And in particular, I think Doomsday Doomsday, uh, the Doomsday special uh, is interesting. And Gotham War, I think, is going to ruffle some feathers, but hopefully in a good way, insofar as it gets people sort of talking about the characters, talking about the Batman family and the characters that we know and love. And yeah, we can uh, go from there. So without further ado, from myself and from on behalf of Chase of the Comic Source podcast, who couldn't be here, uh, uh, you guys uh, have a, have a, Wonderful week of reading comics. And until then, I will say, Comic Boom out. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.